A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon. In today for Julia Chatterley, ahead on today's program, prayers for a pope. Thousands gather in Vatican City for the funeral mass of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, the latest on today's historic ceremony just ahead. Plus, Congress and chaos. Kevin McCarthy still unable to seal the deal and win over hardline conservatives in his bid to become U.S. House Speaker. His unprecedented fight now entering its third day. The latest from Washington straight ahead. Also, the turmoil in tech. Amazon announcing thousands more job cuts than initially planned. And that's just hours after software giant Salesforce announced a 10 percent reduction in its workforce. Tech layoffs and the wider U.S. jobs picture a main focus for Wall Street investors today. Take a look at U.S. futures falling after a new report shows robust hiring in the wider U.S. economy beyond tech. Payroll firm ADP reporting that private U.S. employers added 235,000 jobs last month. That is about 80,000 more positions than was expected. And also just released jobless claims numbers. Well, that's also pointing to continued strength in the labor market. So let's get more now on the jobs picture with CNN's chief business correspondent, Christine Romans. Christine, great to have you on this day. Walk me through this report, because when you look beyond the headline numbers, you do actually see that the recovery is not quite so even. You have some of the larger companies starting to pull back on hiring. Walk me through this. One word, fragmented here. You know, overall, we have a still strong labor market. But when you look within the numbers, you can start to see where there are areas that are adding aggressively. Leisure and hospitality, for example. I mean, people want to do things and spend money on experiences. And the good producing part of goods producing part of the economy is showing signs, I would say, of cooling, not of faltering, but of cooling. Uh, in these ADP numbers, it is the chief economist there who uses that word fragmented. You look at overall at the numbers, the good producing sector increases is only uh, 22,000. But leisure and hospitality is the big bright spot. Also some gains from professional and business services. But overall, a 235,000 print on an ADP private sector payroll number. Uh, That is surprising, I think, given the fact that the Fed has been raising interest rates aggressively for six months. This is still a labor market where, bottom line, a lot of employers are still struggling to find workers. You can see that in the jobless claims as well. You're not seeing layoffs. Layoffs are historically low. They're back at pre-pandemic levels. What both of these numbers together show me is that the job market remained robust into the end of the year. I think that is a really good way to to describe it, Christine. I want to talk a bit about tech. Amazon making some news, saying that it will be cutting 18,000 jobs. Neil Saunders, an analyst who covers the retail space, pointed out in a research note that actually since 2018, Amazon has added about a million jobs. And so I wonder, Christine, how much of this Amazon and tech beyond, how much of this is just sort of a correction from the overhiring and how much of this is an actual belt tightening because of weakening consumer demand or weakening profit? What what do you think? So we just said that the job market overall heading into the end of year is robust. And then some could say, well, how can you say that when we've had a 10 percent layoffs at Salesforce at 18,000 at Amazon? That is a huge number and the largest layoffs ever in in Meta's history. Context is key here. 
when you're talking about a million jobs added since 2018 in Amazon, it was hiring at a breakneck pace. Then they sort of slowed the hiring. Where you, where you see the, the firing, it's in HR, it's in recruiting. I mean, the jobs that they added to add more jobs. So it might be a little bit of an overcorrection. It's also you're seeing that ad dollars are dwindling. Spending is, spending is getting more cautious in these sorts of areas. And so these companies that have grown aggressively over the past few years are starting to uh, you know, take a little bit of a back. In context, it's it's almost a margin, you know, a margin error in terms of how many jobs that they added over at Salesforce. The CEO there acknowledging, yeah, we hired too many people too fast. We were just living in the moment and just seeing how aggressive the uh, uh, the the economy was for them in a good way, and they had been hiring, hiring, and hiring, and now they've got to kind of like retrench a little bit. So it's interesting to watch those big numbers in those tech layoffs, but also to put it in perspective. I always say that, you know, by context, you know, that part of the, the labor market is really only about 7% of the overall labor market. So the tech layoffs don't really, they're not really a canary in the coal mine, I think, at least yet for the broader economy. Yeah, it's a great point, Christine. Perspective and context matters, perhaps even more so when you have an economy that can sometimes be a bit confusing to, to truly appreciate and understand. Yeah. Christine Romans, great to have you. Thank you. You're welcome. And we're actually going to speak to Neela Richardson, the chief economist at ADP, a lot more about this report that's coming up later in the show. But now we want to turn to Washington and the battle to be the next Speaker of the House. Lawmakers set to reconvene in a few hours after Republican leader Kevin McCarthy failed three more times on Wednesday to secure enough votes to become Speaker. So far, if you've lost track, understandably, he has suffered defeat in six rounds of voting in two days. Lauren Fox has the details. Chaos on the House floor. After Congress adjourns for a second day without a speaker elected. We have a third, one of our three branches of government offline right now. That is a very dangerous thing for our country and it cannot continue much longer. Representative Kevin McCarthy failed to secure the job after three more votes took place on Wednesday. The California Republican now losing six votes in two days. I think it's probably best. Um, sorry. Let people work through some more. Could you have a deal with those guys right now? But a lot of progress. The failure to elect a speaker means members cannot be sworn in, leaving Congress paralyzed until the standoff is resolved. None of us has seen anything like this disrespect for the institution in a most cavalier, frivolous way. It's quite sad. 20 holdouts rallied their support for Republican Representative Byron Donalds. For the first time in history, there have been two black Americans placed into the nomination for Speaker of the House. Sources tell CNN that McCarthy is continuing negotiations with the group of opposing lawmakers and met separately with freshman holdouts. I'm sure there, there's some that may be uh, no uh, permanently, but... Uh, Mr. McCarthy is not treating them that way. Everyone is engaged in these meetings and discussions, and he's open to hearing from all of them. Republican sources tell CNN McCarthy proposed more concessions, one including a rules change that would allow one member to call for a vote to oust the speaker and to appoint more members from the Freedom Caucus to the Rules Committee, which dictates whether bills come to the floor. McCarthy may concede to a vote on a bill proposing term limits for members and a border security plan. Although even with all those concessions, Republican sources say McCarthy would still not have enough votes. Kevin McCarthy does not have 218 votes. Kevin McCarthy and you will have, not and be you speaker. And you have 20. I, 
Kevin I asked McCarthy you a very specific question. If by Listen, Friday when we, when we you get don't this have right, 30, I will not, Sean. I will not withdraw. Our asks not. were were not petty of Kevin McCarthy. They were not self-serving. We simply were asking for commitments on what the American people want to see. To China now, the World Health Organization criticizing China for a lack of transparency and publishing its COVID data, saying it's underrepresenting the true impact of the outbreak. Now, despite that, Beijing says that it will reopen the border with Hong Kong this Sunday for the first time in nearly three years. Ivan Watson is live for us in Hong Kong with the details. Ivan, great to have you. So help me understand, certainly there are industries that will benefit from this, but how are residents in Hong Kong reacting to this? Well, I'm a resident here, and I'll give you one example. Um, my, my daughter got sick this week with a cold, and I went to pharmacies looking for fever medicine, cold medicine, throat lozenges, and you can't find them. Uh, and the pharmacists told me they've all been bought up, purchased to treat the just massive numbers of people that are sick across the internal boundary between mainland China and Hong Kong. And this is a, a trend that we've seen kind of across the region, Macau and Taiwan uh, as well. So that is one example there. Another is just the response of the Hong Kong government, which has desperately wanted to reopen the boundary for years with mainland China because the Hong Kong economy has been suffering in isolation for years amid the pandemic. Uh, but the decision to open the boundary on Sunday will be somewhat limited. There are going to be travel quotas. About 60,000 travelers a day going in each direction. And get this, the Hong Kong government says that the travelers from mainland China will need to get PCR tests, will, will need to get COVID tests, negative COVID tests, at least 48 hours, less than 48 hours before travel time. Uh, so those are kind of travel restrictions, the same kind of restrictions that the Chinese government has been very unhappy that a growing number of countries and governments around the world have been imposing. For example, the U.S. Uh, is, is also uh, demanding uh, pre-flight COVID tests, negative COVID tests from travelers coming from China. I believe we have a map that we could show to illustrate some of this. Uh, and the furthest extreme among the many countries that are imposing these new restrictions is Morocco, which is completely barring travel uh, from mainland China, at least for the time being. Sweden and Germany have just joined on board. Thailand has announced it's not going to impose restrictions, and its health minister has said that Chinese tourists could help revive its economy, which relies heavily on tourism and has taken a beating. Uh, we've heard similar th sentiments from the New Zealand government. Meanwhile, the criticism continues to pile on the Chinese government about alleged lack of transparency when it comes to uh, the scale of the outbreak. For instance, according to the Chinese Center for Disease Control, only about 20 people have died of COVID. COVID in the last two weeks in the entire country, whereas our teams in Beijing have been to funeral homes where they've seen bodies stacked up uh, in containers outside the crematorium. Listen to what the World Health Organization, an official, had to say last night about this. We believe that the, the current numbers being, being published from, from China underrepresent the true impact of the disease in terms of hospital admissions, in terms of uh, ICU admissions, and particularly in terms of deaths. Um, and we would like to see more data on a more geographic basis across China. And we'll continue to endeavor and we look forward to getting more information on that from our colleagues. And the Chinese government insists it has been cooperating with the World Health Organization. It has accused critics of trying to political, politicize the situation. And it also insists that the COVID situation in China right now is under control.
Rahel. Okay, Ivan Watson, there is a lot there. Thank you. Continue to watch that space. Well, the human cost of Russia's war on Ukraine, of course, is beyond measure, but the economic price is becoming clearer. Ukraine's GDP contracted by over 30% last year, according to the government. And also, Russian state media says Vladimir Putin has dispatched a warship armed with advanced hypersonic missiles. President Putin claims that the missiles are harder to detect and will protect Russia from what he calls potential external threats. Scott McLean joins me from Kiev. Scott, look, I mean, as devastating as those economic figures were, they're actually better than some of the forecasts. And yet we know the war is not even close to being over yet. Yes, certainly no signs of it ending, but you're right. Of course, it's not surprising, Rahel, that the Ukrainian economy is shrinking. What is surprising is that maybe that it didn't shrink by even more because some economists were predicting that it would shrink by 40 or even 50 percent. So by that measure, 30 percent is not so bad. The Ministry of Economy here, which put out these numbers, says that the fact that Ukraine has been able to uh, relatively effectively try to keep the power systems online and repair the damage done by missile strikes, that has certainly helped. And of course, the huge influx of foreign aid and foreign cash has obviously uh, helped uh, tremendously as well. Things perhaps are looking a little bit better on the battlefield for the Ukrainians as of late than they are in the marketplace, uh, especially given that devastating strike on the Russian barracks, which took place New Year's Eve just after midnight, which has caused plenty of ripples inside of Russia. The head of the RT state television channel calling on those members of the military leadership who allowed this many troops to be in the same place at once, essentially sitting ducks. Uh, she's calling on them to be named and to be punished specifically. The Russians are also running into trouble in the strategically important Donbas city of Bakhmut, which has been under siege for months now. The Ukrainians appear to be holding the line, despite the fact that they say that some 60% of the city uh, is now destroyed. The people doing the majority of the fighting, or at least a good chunk of the fighting for the Russians, is the Wagner private military, and today, uh, we saw a new video emerge on in state media of the leader of uh, the Wagner group congratulating some recruits who are ex-prisoners. They had gone around in the summer on a recruitment drive throughout Russian prisoner, prisons offering uh, convicts to essentially expunge their record, be pardoned if they served with the group for six months. And it appears that this is the very first graduating class of those recruits. State media uh, says that some of them are going to be staying on. Of course, uh, there's another side to that story, and that's that CNN has reported on plenty of those recruits being killed in action in Bakhmut, including one foreigner from Zambia, an ex-convict, uh, who was killed in the Bakhmut area. One other thing to point out uh, from Ukraine here, Rahel, and that is that tomorrow, for the Orthodox Church in Ukraine and in Russia as well uh, is Christmas Eve. And so the head of the Russian Orthodox Church is actually calling for there to be a 36-hour ceasefire to allow people to celebrate. The president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is trying to push for an even more ambitious ceasefire. He spoke with President Putin today. He's going to be speaking uh, with President Zelensky today, trying to really utilize his uh, warm relations with both countries to try to convince them to get back to the negotiating table and try to broker some kind of lasting peace. He even called on Vladimir Putin to unilaterally declare a ceasefire on his own. Obviously, at this point, there are no signs that that'll actually happen, Rahel. We will wait to see us, as you pointed out, Orthodox Christians around the world celebrate tomorrow. Scott McLean, thank you.
And Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI has been laid to rest in a service at St. Peter's Square in Vatican City. About 50,000 faithful members of the public attended the ceremony, which was led by Pope Francis. It's the first time in modern history that a pope presided over his predecessor's funeral. CNN's Frederick Pikin has more from Rome. Uh, Frederick, great to have you. I mean, set the scene for us. I mean, you were also among the 50,000 people there. What was it like? Well, it was certainly an amazing experience to be here uh, um, uh, in Rome uh, as all this uh, was happening. Uh, as you said, the square was was packed with people uh, earlier today who were watching all of this really history in the making. As, as you've also said, and I think this is something that was really unique uh, about this funeral service that took place here, is that it was the current pope presiding over the funeral of his predecessor. Of course, Pope Benedict XVI uh, had stepped down in 2013, and so it was Pope Francis who was presiding over the ceremony, even though much of it was not carried out by him himself. Of course, his health has also been uh, difficult uh, for the past couple of months, uh, and so he sat for most of the service. However, he did speak at times. There were several heads of state and other dignitaries who were here in the crowd, although not as many as, for instance, in 2005 uh, for the burial and for the funeral of John Paul II. The Germans, however, with a large delegation here uh, in Rome, you had the German president, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, the German chancellor, and also uh, all the heads of Germany's constitutional bodies that were here as well. One of the things that we have to remember about Pope Benedict XVI, he was, of course, someone who played a massive role here in the Vatican, not just as Pope, but as before that as well, as one of the chief cardinals uh, here, here in the Vatican for decades. He really set the stage and set the tone for much of the doctrine of the Catholic Church over the past I would say about four decades, so certainly a huge loss for the Catholic Church, a huge loss for the Vatican. But he was, of course, also a citizen of Germany and very much rooted in his home area in Germany of Bavaria. And they also had a really strong faction here on the ground as well. Uh, the Bavarian governor was here, also the two former Bavarian governors. In fact, they chartered a plane for many of the dignitaries from that German state alone to come here. And if you look at the crowd, it was interesting because as the sort of funeral ceremony was coming to an end, there were some who were chanting Santo Subito, essentially make him a saint immediately. That to me seemed to be coming from that area where, where the sort of German crowd was. I saw some Bavarian flags there next to the sign calling for Pope Benedict to be declared a saint very quickly. So you do see that there is a lot of support for Pope Benedict. You know, one of the things that we've said about his pontificate is that, of course, there were a lot of difficulties in it, especially if you look at some of the abuse scandals that came to light where some felt that he wasn't doing enough to address that. But he certainly does have a massive and staunch following, especially in large parts of Germany, but then also in large parts of the Catholic Church, especially because of his teachings and because he was such a top theologian as well, Rahel. It's certainly interesting to watch. And uh, as you say, smaller perhaps than his predecessor, but perhaps the way he would have preferred it to begin with. Frederick Pleiken, thank you. And straight ahead on First Move, the holidays are over, so it's time to look forward to the next one. The CEO of Booking Holdings is here with some travel trends. And from sunsets to solar solutions, the startup harnessing the power of the sun, no matter where you are. We'll be right back. Welcome back. With the dawning of a new year and the pandemic, 
seemingly slipping into the rearview mirror, travel companies are gearing up for what they call revenge travel. In other words, people taking vacations to make up for time lost under lockdowns. At Booking Holdings, third quarter earnings certainly reflected a travel surge with revenue up 29 percent and net income soaring 117 percent. According to one research note, it's larger businesses in China and Europe could give it an advantage over rivals, and that's despite economic headwinds. The firm, which uses stars like Idris Elba, who you're seeing here, to advertise, is focusing on its app. Its main brand says that the mobile app was used for 45 percent of its room bookings in the latest quarter. Bookings other brands include Priceline, Kayak and RentalCars.com. Glenn Fogel is president and CEO and joins me now. Glenn, great to have you. Look, the Idris Elba ads certainly get my attention, but I want to start with China. I mean, it's such a huge story. The reopening, how significant is the reopening for booking? Is it a significant tailwind or, or not so much? Help me understand that. Well, it's going to be interesting, and thanks for having me, but nobody knows yet how fast is the outbound business in China going to happen. Obviously, pre-pandemic, China outbound was a huge part of the international travel economy. And so we're all looking forward to it coming back. How quick? Uncertain right now. But certainly we did have a nice piece of business that we enjoyed pre-pandemic for outbound. And we're looking forward to regaining that as people begin to travel again out of China. Mm, So we'll watch to see how quickly that materializes. Glenn, talk to me a bit about revenge travel, because I think we're hearing it certainly from different parts of the travel industry. You hear from the airline CEOs. Uh, You know, you've certainly heard it from different parts of the travel industry. Tell me a bit more about that. And when does that finally start to plateau? Well, without doubt, it definitely was the right term because people have been locked up for two and a half years and people wanted to travel. And we saw it when any type of restriction would drop in terms of travel, people would leap and immediately start booking. So we saw that. Now, the question of when is that going to cut down so much? Uncertain. I think people are really enjoying travel. They know that they want to meet up with the friends that they haven't seen, the families that they missed. All the things that they plan to do and weren't able to do, I think we still have a lot of ramp left in that. In addition, people had a lot of savings during this uh, time when people were unable to either purchase things because of supply chain problems or weren't able to travel. So they built up their savings. Now they want to spend those savings. And we're looking forward to help make those spend in our area. But we know not everyone has unlimited savings, right? We are starting to see in the data, people are starting to draw down on savings. They're starting to use their credit cards. Are you seeing any signs of weakness? Maybe people are still traveling, but are you seeing maybe people are shortening their travel? Any signs of weakness from what you can see? No, you know, it's interesting. We talked about that on our third earnings call where we talked about we hadn't seen people yet begun to either cut back in terms of the number of nights for their holidays or cutting back perhaps in the star level of hotels. We really had not seen that yet. Obviously, that is something historically you do see in any type of downturn in an economy where people say, I'm still going to travel, but maybe I won't do it in this quite extent. I would have done it. Maybe I won't go to the fancy hotel. I'll go to something a little moderately priced. We hadn't seen that yet when we did our call. And we'll see what happens in the future. We don't know what's going to happen with the global economies. But I do know that people are still enjoying some that they missed out for so long. Well, who's enjoying it most? What are you seeing in your data? Who's traveling the most? What age group? What demographic? What can you tell us about that? 
Well, certainly it's interesting how the U.S. in terms of recovery, in terms of the, from the pandemic for travel was definitely leading. And then Europe was behind that. And then even further behind Asia. The great thing that we're seeing is how Asia overall, ex-China, has been coming back. And we mentioned in our third earnings call about how September was the first month where we finally had Asia above the 2019 number. And that was good to see. And we're continuing to see it come back. We're seeing Japan. We're seeing people in uh, Korea. We're seeing all sorts of areas that previously had been lagging a little bit beginning to come back. And of course, they're always the old uh, the holiday uh, place that people always want to go, whether it be in the U.S. and it's New York and it's Las Vegas and perhaps it's Disney World and in internationally, Dubai is popular. And again, seeing that recovery in Japan right now, we're seeing a nice increase there because people have not been able to go to Japan for some time. Hmm, interesting. And I also want to quickly touch on Open Table because Bookings also opens Open Table for those who are not familiar. That's a platform where you essentially make restaurant reservations. Continued signs of strength there, or are you starting to see people cut back on going out, for example? No, actually, and that's another interesting area where there, it's not only revenge travel, it's revenge dining. Where again, people who had not been able to go to restaurants have been restricted, and then once they could go, they were going. And we really are seeing that is a, a, a functional change where previously people were willing just to go to a restaurant to show up. Now, much more so because it's so crowded and so many restaurants, people know they have to book ahead. They need to get a reservation. And Open Table is a great place for somebody to go get that reservation. So we're very pleased with what we see, what we're seeing happening there. Look, I think it's fascinating to watch post-pandemic, just the consumer trends. I mean, I think it speaks to uh, how damaging being locked up in the house for all of those months really was, just in terms of our, our patterns and our routine. So good to see that people are still outspending. We'll see how long it holds up. Glenn Fogel, he is the president and CEO of Booking Holdings. Great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, coming up, jobs jolt. A weak Wall Street open on tap after a red-hot read on U.S. employment. We will speak to the chief economist of ADP. That's the company that compiled today's market-moving report just ahead. Welcome back to First Move. Still a whole lot to get to this hour, including solar solutions. How a Ukrainian startup hopes to bring affordable energy to the war-torn country and beyond. But first, Wall Street bulls needing a bit of a power boost themselves in early trading. Stocks are falling after new data points to continued strength in the U.S. jobs market. Payroll firm ADP reporting that private sector employers added 235,000 jobs last month. That was way above estimates. Now, all of this highlights the tough job ahead for the U.S. Federal Reserve. Fed minutes released Wednesday show that not one central banker, not one, sees inflation falling fast enough to merit interest rate cuts this year. Strong jobs numbers will further complicate the Fed's fight to control inflation. Neela Richardson joins me now. She is the chief economist at ADP. Neela, great to see you and great to have your insights on days like this. Walk me through this report. We talked about it a bit earlier with uh, Christine Romans, but it doesn't appear to be an even recovery. You are starting to see maybe perhaps some of the larger industries pull back. Walk me through what you saw. Absolutely. First, it's really important to note that this data uh, that we presented today is based on ADP's million clients we represent 26 million workers, pay one in six workers here in the United States. So it's a very comprehensive look into what private 
establishments and firms are actually doing with their hiring. What we saw is a very healthy number of 235,000 jobs created. But as you note, that number was not in lockstep across industries or even across uh, establishment sizes with larger organizations notably pulling back on their hiring. Headcount was down uh, in terms of new jobs by 151,000 for people, for establishments that had more than 500 workers. So we're seeing strength in that small and medium uh, enterprise segment, but we're seeing softness and weakness in larger firms that hired more aggressively over the past year. And anecdotally, maybe that's confirmed by the, the headlines that we see and we'll report every day. You hear about the Amazons, you hear about the sales forces. Uh, Neela, what about wages? I saw a figure in terms of annual wages that really got my attention. Right. Well, wages should be getting everyone's attention. It's the only thing workers have at their disposal to combat inflation. The issue is that wages are still not keeping up. But what we're seeing is that wage growth has been really, really strong over the last year uh, in 2022. But we're finally starting to see a deceleration. So wage growth, as measured by ADP, was down to 7% year on year. That's based on 10 million workers for the month. We saw that number come down from about 7.6% in November. Yes, that's progress, but not nearly enough. When we were looking at wage growth before the pandemic, it was around 3%. So we're still more than double what has been the normal pace of wages. And that, unfortunately, is still not keeping up with that headline inflation number that the Fed is working so hard to bring down. All right. Certainly a figure that will raise some eyebrows at the Fed. Uh, Neela, I also want to ask, are you seeing any signs of softening broad beyond just the interest rate sensitive industries. We talk about the tech sector so much, but also housing, right? I mean, we have seen the impact of the Fed's fight on housing, but are you seeing any softness broadening in the labor market? Right. So we are seeing some softness in those interest sensitive sectors like financial services. Those numbers were down for the month, 12,000 jobs. A lot of that that softness is tied to the housing market, tied to the fact that interest rates rose sharply and people kind of pulled back, home buyers pulled back. Also, the low uh, amount of housing inventory is affecting home buyers right now. So you see that play out. We've seen some, not in this report, but we have seen construction. Uh, reflect that softness and certainly manufacturing uh, reflect the softness and in interest rates. So yeah, this is a, a, a fragmented market as we mentioned earlier. Housing is one of those uh, industries we watch because they, it tends to lead the economy into and out of recession. So that softness is an important signal. And Neela, I'm going to ask you a tough question, but I'm confident you can answer it. If you had to describe this labor market today here in the U.S. in one word, how would you do it? Uh, can I do three? <laughs> I'll give you three. Okay. Okay. I would call it tight but fragile. Um, you, you're seeing not a consistent strength uh, across the labor market. You see areas of fragility overall. The jobs market is tight, but it can't be taken for granted. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's really going to be a, an important uh, policy watch point to make sure that rates are tight enough. Uh, that we don't see out wages outrun the pace that is comfortable for inflation to come down, but we still achieve some sort of soft landing for workers.
And I think now with ADP out of the way, all eyes turn to uh, tomorrow's all-important U.S. jobs report. What are you expecting? Because we got ADP, which, as we said, was stronger than expected. Looking ahead to tomorrow, I mean, Goldman Sachs pointed out in a note earlier this week that ADP job growth has underperformed the BLS by about 55,000 on average over the last three reports. So if you look at expectations and you add 55,000 to that, Neela, we're talking about perhaps 290,000 jobs being added. I mean, what are you expecting? I'm not expecting that the ADP numbers we released today is a forecast of BOS. They're different samples. They ask different questions. This is real data from ADP based on actual number of headcount that our client firms have. AD, uh, the BLS numbers are based on a survey. So we can't expect that one number uh, alone is a forecast of the other, even though they appear in a very close together in the same week. But if you add up all the jobs data, if you look at jobless claims that came out this morning, very low, lowest in September. If you look at the jolts data, job openings still strong, even as the economy is slowing. If you look at the ADP numbers and where we're seeing the sources of strength in consumer-facing industries, you add all that up, you already see a labor market that's tight. So what the tomorrow's number will do, it'll give us more context. It'll show us more places where we're seeing fragility, but also more places where we're seeing strength. And it's the job of the Fed to interpret all this data and really make a call on what that means for inflation. Mm, yeah, and that'll be so interesting to watch. We've gotten so much data, as you pointed out, Neela, on the labor front. Uh, Jolts, as you pointed out, showing this week that there are still 1.7 open jobs for every one person looking. Powell seems to be his favorite ratio to talk about when talking about the labor market. So much to watch. Great to have you, Neela Richardson, today with uh, that ADP data. She is the chief economist at ADP. Mm-hmm. And still to come, with energy prices uncomfortably high in Europe, I chat with the CEO of a startup working to make solar power more accessible, one balcony at a time. We'll be right back. Welcome back to First Move. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, energy costs in Europe have been uncomfortably high. My next guest has been working to ease the burden. We Do Solar, a startup founded by Ukrainian entrepreneur Karolina Aspodina, allows customers to install solar panel kits on their balconies. We Do Solar says that its system can help users reduce their electricity bills by up to 25 percent, while also cutting their dependency on Russian gas and oil and their carbon footprint. Joining me now is Karolina Aspodina. She is the CEO and co-founder of We Do Solar. Karolina, great to have you today. Thank you so, so much for having me. Wonderful to have you. So let's start at the top. I mean, how does the system actually work? You say it's lightweight. You can put it on your balcony. Explain to us a bit how it works. Yes, um, the system is very lightweight. So I think when designing and when creating with you solar, for us, it was very important to create a product that will be available for people that are not only um, owning their own uh, houses, but also is available for apartment buildings. Um, Someone who is potentially renting an apartment and maybe doesn't own um, a property. So I felt really unfair that there is no kind of way for people to have access to renewable energy if they're not the owners of um, the property. The uh, system works in a really simple way. We have a set of certain uh, amount of solar panels. They're very, very lightweight, uh, about like one kilogram each. 
and they are placed onto your balcony uh, with specific straps. And after that, there is a specific engine uh, that is called a microinverter, which transitions the solar energy into grid energy. And with that, it pushes it into your grid just by plugging it into a normal power socket. Hmm. So, so how- many people, unfortunately, don't know. Yeah, and many people don't know uh, how that works, uh, but there is a way to actually push solar energy into your household and solar power always have a bigger push than the actual grid energy. Well, I think that's fascinating. I mean, how much energy and power are we talking? I mean, can you power actually larger appliances like a washing machine, a refrigerator? I mean, how much energy are we talking? Yeah, so um, our, let's say, smallest set is 600 watt uh, worth of power. So that can, exactly like you mentioned, uh, power up to 25% of your household devices. Of course, at peaks of energy, um, because depending on when the power comes in, uh, this is when your household devices will be then powered by um, solar. Uh, Of course, you can also install bigger sets, right? And we are going to come out with bigger sets where you can power up, you know, bigger amounts or bigger percentage of your household. So it depends, of course, on how much, let's say, square meters you have on your balcony or maybe terrace uh, to make sure that you can introduce that to your home. And Carolina, as I understand it, you launched shortly before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What's demand been like so far? Yes, uh, it definitely has been a coincidence um, with our launch. Um, As I am Ukrainian, it has been a pretty tough time because obviously I have uh, family there as well. And we were basically launching pretty much at the same time as the war has um, occurred. Uh, from the start of the war, I think within a week or two, people have realized that the energy prices are going to go up and they have started to go up. Um, I think the governments have finally understood that they need to be independent and they need to focus on renewable energy and integration of renewable energy into their households. And um, definitely 70% like we saw an increase um, in sales of our product. So help me understand, I mean, how many countries are we talking? How many customers? Help me sort of quantify what demand has been like and what's been a relatively short period of time. Yeah, it has been a pretty short period of time. So when we launched, we launched first in Germany only because this is where our startup is sitting um, right now. And right now we're live in 24 countries across Europe. I see. Any challenges to being in 24 countries? I mean, that's quite impressive in less than a year. Any challenges in terms of regulations? I mean, is it pretty uniform across these countries or or are there some challenges in terms of meeting the, the demand in different countries? There are definitely some countries still, um, like Hungary, Hungary, for example, where uh, solar sets like this are still not allowed and, you know, certain regulations are still not there. Um, However, most of the countries do have regulations in place uh, for a smaller amount of self-installation solar. So that would be 600 watts. And some countries are actually going up in higher capacities, like 800 or 1,200 watt that you can install by yourself. So with that said, I do see that within the future, uh, you know, evolving uh, within solar, you know, these capacities will be only growing. Hmm. And speaking of only growing, I mean, I understand that at some point you would like to expand into Ukraine. Help me understand. I know you said you've been in contact with the Ukrainian government, but that your products need the grid. What's your hope in terms of when you'll be able to expand in your home country? 
hopefully as soon as possible, um, not because of the expansion, but because simply the situation that people are under right now. Uh, so we do hope that the war will be over very soon um, and hopefully this year. Um, we do need the grid, that is correct. Uh, at the moment, uh, people are more in the survival mode and they need different sources of energy to keep them, let's say, alive and, um, you know, keep the electricity on. Uh, for us, our product would come in place only when the cities are being rebuilt and we can then introduce it to the new buildings um, as an alternative um, source. Energy source, yeah. An energy source that is uh, clearly needed right now in Ukraine. Carolina Atzbudina, yeah. great to have you. Thank you. She is the CEO and Thank co-founder you. of yeah, We Do Solar. And still to come. A new allegation from Prince Harry about his brother and his latest book. What he's saying after the break. Welcome back to First Move and one last check on the markets. U.S. stocks falling in early trading after a new report showed private employers added more than 230,000 jobs last month. That was way above estimates. You can see the Dow is off 1.2 percent. The Nasdaq, the worst among them, off about 1.4 percent and the S&P off 1.1 percent, let's call it. And tomorrow, the government releases its all-encompassing jobs report on Friday. Today's data, though, suggesting that Friday's number could come in strong as well. Not good news for the inflation-fighting Fed, but definitely good news for American workers. And stocks in the news today include Bed Bath & Beyond. Take a look. Shares are off a whopping 22 percent. Shares sitting at about $1.90 a share right now. The large U.S. retailer warning that it may be forced to file for bankruptcy as its financial position worsens. Its shares off by more than 20 percent, as I said, closer to 22 percent. Also, shares of cryptocurrency bank Silvergate Capital They're tumbling, too. Look at that. Off about 45 percent. The company reporting a sharp drop in crypto deposits after the collapse of FTX. The rift between Prince Harry and the rest of the British royal family appears to be growing deeper. The prince is accusing his brother, Prince William, of course, of physically assaulting him back in 2019. That's according to The Guardian newspaper, which says it's seen an advanced copy of Prince Harry's much-anticipated new book, Spare. The paper says Harry writes that William knocked him to the floor during an argument over Harry's wife, Meghan. Prince Harry sat down with Good Morning America co-anchor Michael Strahan to discuss the new book. Take a listen to what he said. The quote in his book where you refer to your brother as your um, beloved brother and arch nemesis. Strong words. What did you mean by that? There has always been this competition between us, weirdly. I think it really plays into, always played by the air spare. CNN's Max Foster joins me now. Max, great to see you. Does it surprise you at all, having covered the royal family for so long, does it surprise you at all to hear him call uh, Prince William his arch nemesis? Yeah, I mean, the whole book appears to be about his issue with being the spare, so the number two. I think, you know, this is only one side of the story that we're getting at the moment because Prince William's side have decided not to comment on any of this. Uh, But I think Prince William's side would say, actually, they used to... um, tried to promote Harry as much as possible, not making him feel like a spare. So they had a very equal partnership, as far as it could be equal, within the monarchy, which is built on a hierarchy. Um, he's got an issue, Harry, with the system, effectively, uh, which is that there are 
people more senior in the pecking order to him and he didn't like playing second fiddle. And then you've got the more sort of salacious detail that's coming out in this sort of blitz of publicity around the book. Uh, you were talking there about the fight, which is making all the headlines here. Um, uh, William pushing, effectively pushing um, Harry to the ground and injuring him, uh, being seen as, you know, using violence against his brother after a, a big argument when he's being very critical of Meghan. So I think there's a lot of sort of salacious interest here. Uh, but the bigger issue which is coming out of this is that Harry just doesn't believe that he should have been made to feel second best throughout his whole life. Well, I mean, sibling dynamics are complicated, to say the least. Max, can I circle back to those salacious allegations, the ones making the, the most headlines, as you pointed out? I mean, fights among brothers or siblings in general aren't so uncommon. Any greater sense of how serious these allegations were in terms of the, the altercation or the, the physical uh, nature of it all? I think, uh, you know, Harry talks a bit about that and how he, you know, he... I don't think it's particularly scarred him. He's using it as an illustration of the sort of issue that he had, trying to find examples of exactly why he was so frustrated. Uh, he actually concedes in there that William was trying to help him. Uh, Harry saying, well, this isn't helping me. Um, so there's, you know, there's that brotherly, brotherly contest. I don't think it's unusual for brothers to fight, as you say. It's not unusual for brothers to have competition either. I think there'll be a huge amount of frustration within the family that these very private moments, and they're deliberately private, William went round to Harry's house, he was there on his own, uh, they're all being blown out into the public. And, you know, we're not getting William's side to any of this. And I think that's simply because if he did start giving his narrative, then it would just continue and it would keep blowing up. And I think they've just decided they're not going to comment to allow this all to blow over at some point if there isn't any more sort of content to come out around it. I mean, it's, a, it's a, an interesting point, Max. I mean, I, I wonder when it will blow over at some point because it, it seems to be the story that just continues to, you know, have new headlines. Max Foster, great to have you. Thank you. Thanks, Rahul. And finally, another honor for football legend Pele. A day after he was laid to rest, Rio de Janeiro has renamed the avenue in front of the city's Maracana Stadium as King Pele Avenue. Now, initially, it was to be called Pele Avenue, but a Twitter poll found nearly 90 percent of those who voted wanted King in the street name. The three-time World Cup winner died last week after a battle with colon cancer. And let's take a quick look at the markets, if we might. As we said, they've been lower pretty much all morning uh, after we got that strong ADP data you can see right across the board. And that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Connect the World is coming up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.